Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has this morning decided to award the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics in equal share to Alain Aspin, John F. Clauser, and to Anton Seilinger. They received the prize for experiments with entangled photons, establishing the violation of Bell inequalities and pioneering quantum information science. In 2022, the Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to a trio of scientists who'd spent decades trying to understand the foundations of quantum mechanics. Their work has set the stage for a new era of technology, giving rise to quantum computers, quantum networks and secure quantum cryptography. What allows all that technology to work is a phenomenon called quantum entanglement. And to get a handle on what that actually is, I spoke to one of this year's laureates, Anton Zeilinger. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. This week, we dive deep into the strange, fascinating edges of quantum physics with Anton Zeilinger. He's a physicist at the Austrian Academy of Sciences and a professor emeritus at the University of Vienna. We'll be asking, how can investigating the most fundamental particles unlock an understanding of principles that span the entire universe, such as space and time? And we'll explore why teleportation in the subatomic world is possible and what uses it has in a future of quantum technologies. There's a quote that does the rounds in scientific circles, and it's usually credited to the American physicist Richard Feynman. It goes something like this. If you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics. He had a point. Quantum mechanics is the physics that describes the very smallest things in the universe, such as protons, electrons, the Higgs boson, and some of the fundamental forces. It's a description of a very strange and counterintuitive world. What scientists once thought were particles, electrons say, turned out to be waves as well, according to quantum theory. And what they thought were waves, light for example, 
turned out to be a stream of particles called photons. Quantum mechanics also inserts huge amounts of uncertainty into the world and tells us there are fundamental limits to what we can really know about nature. In Isaac Newton's classical view of physics, if you knew the starting conditions and what forces were acting on a system, a ball flying through the air for example, you could calculate its entire future. In quantum physics though, the best you can do is work out the probability that something will happen. There is no such thing as certainty. If all of this makes you feel a bit queasy, then you should know that you're in good company. Albert Einstein didn't like the uncertain nature of quantum physics at all. In 1926, he even made the now immortal quip that God does not play dice. He was particularly exercised about a weird property of quantum systems called entanglement. Changing the properties of one particle in an entangled pair will immediately change the properties of the other particle, according to quantum mechanics, no matter how far apart those particles actually are. The particles could be right next to each other, or at opposite ends of the galaxy. Something this strange sounds like it should break some of the laws of physics, and in a sense it does. Einstein's theory of special relativity says that nothing can travel faster than light. If entangled particles were separated by a great distance, how could information apparently travel between them instantaneously? Einstein didn't like it. He disparagingly called entanglement spooky action at a distance. He was convinced that entanglement, with all its weirdness, demonstrated that quantum mechanics might not be the complete description of reality. In 1936, he proposed that there must be something else, a more fundamental theory, that truly explained entanglement. But Einstein's concerns were misplaced, and it took almost half a century to prove it. In the 1970s and 80s, physicists John Clauser and Alain Aspect proved that you don't need anything more than quantum mechanics to explain entanglement. For this work, they were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2022, along with our guest today, Anton Zeilinger. He showed experimentally that particles can indeed get entangled, even if they are thousands of kilometres apart. Professor Anton Zeilinger, welcome to Babbage. It's great to be here on this uh, uh, internet connection or blog or whatever it is called. I'm not so much <laughs> up in these modern names, you know. <laughs> well, look, we can happily explain the differences between all those things to you later. But meanwhile, Professor Zeilinger, why don't you start by helping us all to get into the right frame of mind. If someone wants to get a handle on quantum physics, 
What's the shift that they need to make in the way they think about the world um, versus the more familiar classical physics? You know, the ideas developed by Isaac Newton. Well, I think the, the big message is that, you know, when you talk about classical physics, which is also the physics of everyday life, you know, when you look at something uh, and you see that this has the color red and it's being over here, definitely, or not, not over there and so on, you always have definite properties which the systems have, even if you don't know them, and you build all your understanding on that. In quantum physics, you have to give up that. You have to give up that what you see, for example, the color of an object or where it is, was already defined before the experiment determining it. So this brings in also a complete randomness. And as Erwin Schrödinger, the Austrian Nobel Prize winner, said that we probably have to change our view of the world in a fundamental way, but we haven't found a new way yet. So, so quantum physics, you're kind of taking away the idea that something has a particular property uh, or is in a place in space before you've actually observed it. And, and, you know, what about things like randomness as well? I mean, people talk about quantum physics as being a, uh, you know, there's all sorts of probabilities involved. You can never be sure about anything. Uh, what do people need to know about that when trying to understand and get their head around quantum physics? Well, the point is that for the individual quantum event, so if you look at one individual particle, the experimental result is usually, with few exceptions, is usually completely random. And it's random in the way that we believe in physics there is not even a hidden explanation. So it's not our ignorance, but nature is that way. And this is different from randomness in classical physics. Like if you throw some dice, you could in principle calculate what's coming out. This is impossible for quantum dice. But what shouldn't throw their baby out with the bathtub? It is not complete randomness. And it's not that we cannot say anything. Because in the statistical means, if you look at many particles, you very well can say what will happen. So this idea of randomness, uh, slightly unpredictable behaviors and all of that, it, it was very different from the clockwork physics universe that sort of prevailed until the beginning of the 20th century. And I guess as people try to understand what it was all about... Uh, amongst its critics was, was a very famous scientist, Albert Einstein, who had problems with the fact that he thought that quantum physics was incomplete. It was, you know, a little bit too uh, indeterminate. W would you just describe what his problem with quantum physics was when he wrote about it? He had two problems. One was very early, he realized that randomness of a new nature here. And he didn't like that. He said, a famous statement that he believes that God does not play dice with the universe. Uh, you know, so at least God should kind of know what will happen, etc., etc. Right? We now know that this view of the world doesn't work. And the other thing which Einstein didn't like is its entanglement. It's when you have two particles which are entangled, which are connected, then the measurement on one changes the quantum state of the other one instantly over arbitrary distance, and you have to keep in mind that the result is still random. So how can this be perfectly correlated and be random? That's the mind-boggling part, so to speak. And it was his hypothesis, wasn't it, that to try and explain this, there could be some hidden layer below quantum mechanics, quantum physics, that um, might 
connect these particles up, these entangled particles you talked about, which was then, of course, for the next few decades, scientists, including yourself, have tried to work out the answers to. Um, but before we talk about that, I wonder if you could just describe for me that word entanglement. You mentioned it just now, quantum entanglement. What does it mean when particles are entangled? And how do you entangle them? Uh, I like to use the picture of identical twins. You know, identical twins are identical because they carry the same genetic information. So there is a common cause. There's a cause which explains why they are the same, which was hidden to humanity for a long time. It's only the last 70 years we know what's going on. And if these were quantum twins, then there would not be genes which determine. But all they would know is that they have to turn up the same way. Without having the possibility to talk to each other, without any cause and so on. And this is the fascinating side about it. So twins essentially might look entangled, but actually there is a hidden thing going on between them, which is that they share the genes. But in quantum entanglement, the particles are connected, but they have nothing underneath them that are connecting them, essentially. Right. And there is no communication between them either. Um, I've heard you talk about entanglement in lots of different lectures, and you once said that you don't like the word entanglement to describe this property. Um, the German word for that phenomenon is better. Can you just tell me why? Yeah, the German word is Verschränkung. Uh, Verschränkung is like, you know, if you, for example, hold someone very tight and the other person also holds you very tight, then you are verschränkt in a sense. So it's a well-defined relationship. Uh, entanglement sounds more like the chaos you have with spaghetti and so on, which is not actually the case. So this, this hug of yours, it sounds much nicer than entanglement anyway. Quantum hugging, we'll call it that from now on. You, you, you invented something nice right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, I mean, talking about quantum entanglement or hugging, uh, whatever we're going to call it now, the experiments that you carried out and for which you were awarded the Nobel Prize in 2022, they were part of a long series of experiments, weren't they? Started by your fellow laureates, John Clauser and Alain Aspect, which were meant to prove that Einstein's objections to quantum entanglement were, were not right. Um, their results had gone most of the way to proving that you don't need anything other than quantum mechanics to explain quantum entanglement, that there's no hidden physics as uh, Einstein had suspected. And then we have your experiments, which closed the very last remaining gaps by showing it was possible to entangle particles further and further apart. And the idea there being that the further apart the particles are, the less chance they have of communicating in some secret way. Can you explain the setup of your experiments? What were you actually trying to measure? Uh, well, we, we detect entangled photons, which are entangled in the property called polarization, which everybody knows who ever used the sunglasses, which have Polaroids or the Polaroid filters on cameras. Polarization is how the electric field oscillates. And it can oscillate in different directions, and you can't have the situation that the two polarizations are identical of the two entangled photons, but all they know is they have to be entangled, but not along which direction. So then you measure the polarization of one very quickly, and you change, actually change the measurement direction in the last moment, just before the photon arrives, such that if the photon had started from the source with 
the expectation, oh, I will be measured along this direction, then no, it will be measured along another direction. So we exclude this possibility that they are starting with a definite, definite feature. And they, the first such experiment was then done in, in the Hofburg Castle, the Imperial Castle in Vienna, in the basement, because there we had a long basement of 60 meters length, and that was completely quiet and so on. So the experiment involves entangling these photons, sending them to different ends of an experiment, and then measuring what the polarization of these different photons is. And then you show that by measuring the polarization of one photon, you can determine the polarization of the other one. Right. And in your experiments, you just said that you did one in the basement of a castle, but actually your most recent one was much further apart than that. You know, this is the idea of trying to separate the photons so that there's no possibility of communications between them. Um, what's the sort of furthest distance you've managed to experiment with photons separated and entangled? Well, the furthest distance was done by, by the Chinese, uh, the Chinese satellite. So they had a satellite and sent down the photons to two locations which were separated by a couple of hundred kilometers or maybe even thousand. I don't know exactly. This is the furthest distance ever done. Okay, we have done another experiment, which was to send the two photons to two measurement stations, which were separated by some little more than a kilometer, and use random numbers coming to us from quasars. Quasars are the objects which are billions of years away in the cosmos, and coming from quasars of different opposite locations on the sky, which is as independent randomness as you can get. These are the experiments that essentially prove that entanglement is real, that there's no hidden physics going on to explain it underneath. It's a real property of quantum physics, another strange property of quantum physics, uh, essentially, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Proving that quantum entanglement is real and that Einstein was wrong is not, of course, the end of this story. In probing and testing the edges of quantum physics, Professor Zeilinger and his colleagues have kick-started an entirely new field of research in the form of quantum information science. Its applications already include quantum computers, cryptography sensors, and much more. But for Professor Zeilinger and others who are interested in understanding the very foundations of quantum mechanics, Investigating entanglement has become their way of probing deeper into the nature of reality itself. That's all coming up. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Today on Babbage, we're investigating the foundations of quantum physics. So far on the show, Anton Zeilinger, one of the 2022 Physics Nobel laureates, 
has been telling me how he carried out a series of experiments which proved that Albert Einstein's doubts about quantum physics were misplaced. Now, of course, Professor Zeilinger hasn't stopped there. In recent years, he's pushed the boundaries of what scientists know about quantum entanglement even further. He's shown that quantum particles can not only become entangled even if they're separated by large distances, but that those particles can swap quantum information with each other. Though he uses a much more sci-fi term for what's going on. Teleportation. We've talked about your experiments to show that entanglement is real. But another experiment of yours that I think has become famous is about teleportation. Now, <laughs> before everyone gets excited about Star Trek-type teleportation, can we just define what you mean when you were doing your experiments on quantum teleportation? What did you actually do? I think it's actually much better than Star Trek. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> <laughs> In Star Trek, they teleport a person, you know, in some magic wave. And then they realize that this cannot work according to quantum mechanics. And what quantum teleportation does is it teleports the quantum state of a system. So not the matter, but the state. The state contains all information a system contains. And that is enough. Like if you were teleported, it wouldn't matter whether you were constituted of the same carbon atoms and so on, as you are now. All that matters is that they are arranged in the same way as they are arranged in the analog who I am talking about right now. So what we do is we teleport the information from one place to another. So in your experiment, tell me what you did in that experiment to show that quantum teleportation is possible. This is done using, using entanglement. And what you do is you share one photon from an entangled pair. Somebody provides... Alice, the sender, and Bob, the receiver, okay? Alice additionally now gets a photon which has some state. In our case, it was the polarization we looked at, some polarization state. And in order to teleport, what she does is she entangles the teleportee with her member of the entangled pair. And by that, the photon that Bob's place is changed into a state which contains the information which Edison, the original, has. And that's it. So let's just break that down um, so that I know I've understood it. The example you've given me refers to Alice and Bob. And for anyone who doesn't know, Alice and Bob are the classic names used by information scientists for any message that's being transmitted. So Alice is always transmitting messages and Bob is the one receiving them. So Alice and Bob have an entangled pair of photons, um, one each. And Alice wants to teleport information from where she is to where Bob is. So what she does is she, she takes the photon that she wants to teleport and entangles it with her member of the originally entangled pair. And in that process, the photon that Bob has is changed. And what's happened is that the quantum information from the, the photon that Alice wants to teleport has been transferred to the photon sitting where Bob is. And in that process, we've got to say that, of course, the actual photons themselves don't move. It's not the Star Trek teleportation. But the quantum information has been moved. And in your experiments, the information was all about the polarization of the photons. So that's how teleportation works. But tell me, why is it useful for quantum technologies? The teleportation is considered to be useful 
to connect future quantum computers with each other. And it's also useful by transferring information inside a quantum computer from one place to another. All of this work, it's been going on for many decades, as you've intimated, but it's still really early days in trying to understand and build these networks. And, you know, I just wonder where you think it's going. You know, is this just going to get more and more sophisticated? We're going to understand even more about quantum states and better ways to teleport and make bigger networks. Is that where you're interested in taking it? I mean, this this is a huge effort going on, and I have no chance to actually follow what what is really going on. There are various directions, like quantum sensing is something which appears to have some good ideas, actually, that you use this, the subtlety of quantum states to, to measure something much more precise than what is possible classically. All this is going on, but somehow I feel, I feel that some of the really new ideas are still around the corner, and they might imply a deeper understanding of the foundations of quantum mechanics. And that's what I'm interested in. What was it about the foundations of quantum mechanics in the early days that sort of physicists were put off from studying it, weren't they? Because it was just a case of it worked. Uh, it was a very radical new idea, quantum physics. It kind of had all these bizarre properties, but it kind of worked and was predictable and it explained the behavior of very small particles. And people didn't try and understand what it really meant in, in nature. What, what, why was that? Was it just too complicated? And, and then why did you get interested in it? I think this is a very interesting question, actually. You know, quantum mechanics was invented in the 1920s. Then people were debating about its meaning in so-called Gedanken experiments, thought experiments. So, you know, like if you put this on an optical table and use that kind of light, then that and that would happen and so on, right? And the point was that the technology was not there. So I'm sure that this put off scientists and the discussion between Einstein and Niels Bohr, for example, who was his big opponent, was considered to be just philosophical, which has no experimental consequence. And then the miracle which happened was that in the 1970s, with the invention of the laser and also with some developments with uh, high flux nuclear reactors and this kind of thing, suddenly became possible. And I was lucky enough to live at the time when this kind of thing just emerged. And I decided to try to do some of these experiments. So it was something that was ignored, maybe, or pushed to the sort of edges of philosophy at the beginning of quantum physics, but now really is something at the center of it. And I, I guess this is where it gets complicated, because if we don't know what quantum mechanics is telling us about the nature of reality itself, how do we start to sort of tease at it? Is entanglement the way into trying to understand what quantum mechanics is telling us about the real nature of the world around us. Well, this is now my personal interpretation. I cannot prove it so far. My personal understanding is that entanglement tells us that our notions of space and time are too simple. So maybe two locations which are different are not that different because some of the predictions of quantum mechanics are uh, independent of space and time. This is quite interesting. And also our notions of what is reality is limited. We said that before. And my feeling is it emerges that information is a fundamental constituent of the world. Yeah. Um, let's just unpack that slightly. So th this idea of 
space and time emerging from something else. This is what I have also read about what quantum entanglement tells us. So the idea of quantum entanglement, of course, as we described, is that you can have particles at different ends of the universe. If they're entangled, then detecting one or observing one will tell you something about the other one, which is confusing from our point of view because they're so far apart. But are you saying that really quantum entanglement is telling us that these particles are not really that far apart in the more sort of basic sense of what space is um, or where space emerges from, that they are local to each other in, in real, in some, some other sense, so they can communicate. I don't know whether the word local applies here. Uh, I think this explanation somehow sounds too, too easy. It would be for me, of course. It's too easy. No, no, no you're, you're, you're in a good company. This has been discussed by, by a quite a number of, of uh, reputable physicists. You know? it's, uh, it's something very, very basic. And I don't have a feeling what it is. But, you know, I keep saying that quantum mechanics will be superseded someday by a deeper theory. But that theory will then be much more strange or much more weird than what we have now. I mean, quantum mechanics is pretty strange and pretty weird in, in many respects, too. No, but not weird enough. Not weird enough, in my feeling. So where, where do you go, then? Um, you are probably one of a few who are right at the forefront of trying to understand this. What are your hunches and hypotheses? Of, what directions do you go in to try and tease out some of these answers? Well, you can... You can experiments which go deeper than the experiments with entanglement. It's experiments with many particles, and it's experiments with, as we call it, particles carrying properties in higher dimensions. And there are some hints of something new happening. That's a field which is just now emerging. Uh, we have started this already something like 20 years ago, and we are getting into this even more. Yeah. And I know that you've said that the applications of these things are not necessarily at the top of your mind, and nor should they be. But I wonder if you might zoom out from trying to understand these foundations. And just if someone asks you, well, what, why is it important that we know any of these things, uh, that we know the foundations of quantum mechanics? Wh why does it make a, a purposeful difference daily lives of people? Well, you see, to me, it's just like astronomy. We are a curious species. The faces of people light up when I tell them about that. And it's not relevant whether we can justify this with an application. It could happen. It's a nice byproduct and we do it. But it's a feature of humans that we want to know more. And that's what's going on in my eyes. How do you feel when you look back on your career? You're one of the scientists who essentially proved that Einstein wasn't right about something. Um, how does that make you feel? Well, to me, I mean, Einstein is a fellow scientist and everyone, uh, every scientist is allowed to make a mistake from time to time. So Einstein is also allowed to make a mistake. To me, it's, it's really not much difference whether this was Einstein or some other person. It adds to popularity, but that's all. It doesn't say anything about the basic physics. No, of course, of course. Um, there's a sort of popular appeal, uh, not necessarily amongst physicists or scientists, but certainly popular appeal. Oh, I proved Einstein wrong, or this person proved Einstein wrong. And so that didn't, that didn't drive you towards doing these experiments. You were just interested in the experiments by themselves, right? I'm interested in experiments by themselves, and 
To me, Einstein is one of the big heroes in science, not only because of his science, but also because of his humanity. Yeah. Um, can I ask you about the prize itself this year? So for many, many years, people have said that you would be one of the people who would be awarded a Nobel Prize in physics for your work in entanglement and foundations of quantum mechanics. And um, I just wonder, could you just describe the moment when you got the call from Sweden? Well, it, it was re really nice. It was a surprise, certainly, because as you said, I have been discussed for a long time for the prize. And people told me that, you know, that they are supporting that I should get the prize and so on and so on and so on. But when the call comes, you are, you, you are surprised, you know. What were you, what were you doing? <laughs> My wife, yeah, I was sitting at home working on some paper and it was about 11 o'clock. So usually these phone calls from Stockholm come, come earlier. So, you know, my wife said, okay, maybe we have to wait for another year or for two years or three years. And suddenly there was this phone call and uh, was the general secretary of the Swedish Academy. You know, the first thing he said is, you know, I'm the general secretary of the Swedish Academy and this is not a fake call. <laughs> they, they know what they're doing. <laughs> we, we looked for whether we find some champagne or something and we, we had a glass of champagne. Did you feel relief or excitement or did you just not know what to feel? It was more that I didn't know what to feel. I still, you know, I was, I was happy, but uh, okay. It takes a while to to settle in, you know. Um, I'm assuming that you're not going to retire now that you have your Nobel Prize. Do you have a full research program ahead? What, what's your sort of plan for the next phase of your career and life? I have a research group and I still had it before the prize and I will keep going. I'm interested to further experiments on the foundations. You know, I've indicated a little bit about that. And I'm also interested to continue my collaboration with my friends in China about worldwide quantum communication using satellites, because that's going to be, that's going to be fun, you know, it's just fun to do these experiments. Just a final sort of thought from you about the place of science in the way that people think about the world and, you know, operate nowadays. Um, you mentioned your work with China. Many countries in the West seem to be distancing themselves with China, but obviously you're interested in working with Chinese scientists. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on where science can play a role in this um, more international community. I, I believe that the interaction between scientists, I also mean young people, students or whatever, between all countries and across all political fused people have from across all political systems that this cooperation should be intense. And I don't like that some of this is now restricted. You know, why should I not communicate with an individual scientist in Russia or in China or wherever, you know? Uh, it's not his fault that they have a government with which some politicians and some people in the West disagree. I really believe that these programs to exchange young students and and so on, and scientists, that really helps to make the European Union more cohesive. That should happen worldwide. I really, I really believe in that. Professor Zeilinger, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Babbage. 
If you're stuck for what to buy someone for Christmas, why not give them a gift of a subscription to The Economist? Listeners can get a special introductory rate at economist.com slash podcast offer. And one final thing. From January onwards, Babbage will be released every Wednesday. But we will be back next week on Tuesday for our final episode of the year. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.